The scripture reading for today is from Luke 24, verses 44 through 53. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. He told them, This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. A repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised. But stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. When he had led them out of the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. This is the word of the Lord. So this passage gives us an account of what's often called the ascension of Christ Jesus, and that refers to the moment in time when mysteriously, Christ left the realm of this earth and physically entered the realm of heaven. And you'll notice at the end of the passage that when the disciples witnessed the ascension, they were filled with joy, just overwhelmed with joy. Starting at verse 51, it says, while Jesus was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they stayed continually at the temple praising God. So their response to the ascension was joy. And in the context of this chapter, the context of Luke 24, the joy that they experienced at the ascension is, is very surprising. You see, th throughout this chapter, even after hearing news of the resurrection, the disciples had very mixed emotions. They were not, even after the resurrection, they were not very joyful. For example, um, when the women returned from the empty tomb with news of angels who were proclaiming that Christ was risen, the disciples did not feel joy. In fact, it's, it says that they were filled with doubt, confusion. And when Jesus appeared to two of the disciples who were walking on the road to Emmaus, they, they were not joyful people. Verse 17 of this chapter says, their faces were downcast. They were so discouraged. Maybe that's how you feel today, just so discouraged. And, and uh, uh, later that day, when, when Christ appeared to all of the disciples assembled together, rather than feeling joy when they saw Jesus, we, they were just overwhelmed with fear. We read in, in verse 37, they were startled and frightened, thinking they had seen a ghost. So, even after learning that Christ had risen, the disciples were doubtful, they were discouraged, they were fearful. Then they see Christ ascend, and it's just pure joy, pure joy. And, and I find that surprising because I always think of, um, in the Christian calendar, I think of Easter as the most joyful day in the whole year, right? But isn't this weird that it, it seems like the ascension gave them more joy even than the resurrection did? Now, why? Why is that? Why were they so joyful? Well, it's, it's, 
it's not because anything in their outward circumstances changed when Jesus ascended to heaven. Outwardly, nothing really changed. So some of you know that many of the initial followers of Jesus were very poor people. They were just simple fishermen. They were humble farmers. They were common peasants. They were poor. Guess what? After the ascension, they were still poor. Their, their financial situation had not changed at all. In addition to being poor, uh, the disciples were oppressed. As first century Jews living in the Roman Empire, they, they were members of an oppressed religious minority. Before the ascension, they were oppressed. After the ascension, still oppressed. The Romans were still running their country. Not only were they oppressed, the, the disciples were persecuted. Their, their own national leaders, their own religious leaders who had called for the death of Christ were now gunning for them. Before the ascension, they were oppressed. After the ascension, the oppression, the persecution just got worse. So isn't that strange? <laughs> nothing, nothing outwardly in their world changed at all when Jesus ascended to heaven. So why were they so joyful? Two reasons. Let me suggest two reasons. First, they were joyful because the king, their king, was now on his throne. He'd been enthroned. You'll, you'll notice at the beginning of this passage, verse 44 to 47, Jesus, after his resurrection, he's explaining to his disciples the scriptures, helping them to understand the, the, the Old Testament, and just telling them that all these things that had happened to them were fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Verse 46 says, he told them, this is what is written, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins... <clears throat> will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. So Jesus just said, listen, all these things that happened, they were rough, but my death, my burial, my resurrection, all of this, he said, this is proof. I am Messiah. I am the Messiah. What is the Messiah? The Messiah is the King. The, it, through the Old Testament, there's, there's this, um, this drumbeat of prophecy that, that God would someday send his, uh, his chosen, anointed king, that the king whom God promised would one day ascend to an eternal throne. Second Samuel chapter 7 said that God would establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Psalm 72 said that he would endure as long as the sun, as long as the moon, through all generations, and that he would rule from sea to sea and to the ends of the earth. That's the prophecy about the Messiah. Daniel chapter 7 said that he would be led into the presence of the ancient of days, that he would be given authority, glory, and sovereign power, and that all nations and all peoples and every language would worship him. These were the promises about the Messiah, and Jesus just explains to them from Scripture. He says, all of this is proof that that Messiah is me. I am the King. And then they saw him ascend, and they just realized it's coronation day. 
It's core. Our king is being enthroned. Our king is receiving his, his crown. As, as, God, as the Bible says in Philippians chapter 2, God exalted Jesus to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. So why are they so joyful? They just, they're just realizing the king is now on his throne. A few years ago, a Christian author who has a very um, large social media following posted a question on his Facebook page. With, within just six hours, he had like over 900 responses, and they just kept coming in. And the question he asked was this, what is your biggest fear? wonder how you would answer that question. Here are some of the responses. One person said, I've never had a family, and I'm in my 50s. I fear and dread the loneliness of old age. Someone wrote, I fear that my children will not grow up, grow up to have their own vibrant relationship with God and that it will be my fault that they don't. Someone wrote, right now, my biggest fear is losing my job and my health insurance. So many people can relate to that. Another person wrote, my biggest fear is that caring for my father with Alzheimer's will be beyond my capabilities. I'm so lost. I'm the sole caregiver, no help. I'm afraid I'm falling apart. One woman wrote, I fear that one day my husband will have an affair again and my world will crumble to dust. One parent wrote, I fear that my daughter will overdose and die. Someone else, maybe some here can relate to this. Someone wrote, my biggest fear is that this horrible depression will continue to take over my life. And then one person with great honesty wrote this, death. I know that as a Christ follower, I should not fear death, but my anxiety-disordered brain is in constant fear of dying. I hate it. I know I've been saved through faith, but the fear is still there. I, w I wonder if any of us here, you can just relate to that idea of a fear that you, you, know, you know you shouldn't have it. Maybe you even think it's irrational, but it just, it won't go away. We all know what it's like to fear. And listen, I'm convinced um, one of the things that we need to learn to do as Christians, we need to learn to talk to our fears. All right? I don't know if that makes any sense, but just kind of imagine yourself saying to your greatest fear, hey, fear, come over here, sit next to me. You and I, we're going to have a little talk. All right? And when you talk to your fear, the main thing you need to inform your fear of is this. You say, my king is on his throne. Amen? Just say to your fear, you don't run this world, fear. You're not in charge. My Jesus is in charge. He's on his throne. That's, that's what the disciples were realizing when they saw Jesus ascending. He's in charge now. Nothing in the world has changed. I still have all these problems, but he's now in charge. That's what Paul wrote about in Ephesians chapter 1. He said, God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything. For the church, 
for us. Believer in Christ, you know what that means? That means that no matter what scary things might be happening in your life right now, and I'm assuming that they are, okay? No matter what scary things might be happening in your life right now, Christian, listen to me. You woke up in a world this morning that is under the complete control of Jesus Christ. Isn't that good news? You, you live every day in a world that is under the authority of the one who loves you more than anyone else. Tim, Tim Keller wrote this, Christ controls all things for the church, and therefore you can face the world with peace in your heart He is at the right hand of the Father as the executive director of history, directing everything for the benefit of the church. If you belong to Christ, Keller writes, then everything that happens ultimately happens for you. That is an amazing thought. A question that that thought raises is, does this mean that... uh, because Christ is in charge of the world, does this mean that nothing bad will ever happen to us? I think you know the answer. No, it doesn't mean that. But here's what it does mean, Christian. It means this. Nothing will happen to us that's outside of our Father's will. And in everything that does happen to us, God has promised that He will be at work for our good And even though we see great evil in the world, we see it. It won't be like that forever. Evil will not get, evil will not win in this world. It will not. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says about Jesus, he must reign until he has submitted all his enemies under his feet. Jesus Christ, the King, is on his throne, and he will fix this world. That's why these disciples are rejoicing. Nothing in their life had changed. They were still poor. They were still broken. They were still hated. But why were they rejoicing? Well, Peter, who was there, he later he later explained why in 1 Peter chapter 3. He, here's why he was so happy. He said, Jesus Christ has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. So why did they have so much joy? Listen, here's why you can have that same joy, believer, because our king, the king, is on his throne. Second reason they had joy. First is because the king is on his throne. The second is because the priest is in his temple. So you see here in verse 50, it says this. When when Jesus had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, it says he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And in the Bible, that action of lifting up one's hands and blessing others, that was something that a priest would do. In Numbers chapter 9, when Aaron, the very first high priest of Israel, when for the very first time he offered a sacrifice in the tabernacle for the sins of the people, it says he lifted up his hands and blessed the people. So this, in in biblical um, thought patterns, this, this, this posture of lifting hands and blessing others, that's something a priest would do, and that's exactly what Christ is doing here, which just fascinates me. As he's ascending into heaven, 
It's kind of like he strikes a pose, right? He, he's, he deliberately takes the posture of a priest. Only unlike Aaron, you know, Aaron, the high priest who presented the blood of an animal on an earthly altar, unlike him, Christ was ascending to a heavenly altar, the very presence of the Father, to present as a sacrifice, not the blood of an animal, but his own blood that he shed on the cross. He is our priest. I know this is a, this is a, um, this is a concept that's somewhat foreign to our modern way of thinking, but in the ancient world, they understood this. He's, he's our priest. If, if, Hebrews chapter 4 says, we have a great high priest who did what? Who walked into some man-made temple? No. It says, we have a great high priest who ascended into heaven after offering his life as a sacrifice on the cross to atone for his people. Jesus ascended into heaven in some mysterious sense to, to appear before the Father. To do what? To claim the benefits of his sacrifice for anyone and everyone who simply trusts in him. Let me tell you why that's good news. When we mess up, and we mess up, when we stumble, maybe give in to some temptation or fall into some sin, or we find ourselves straying into some attitude or behavior that we just don't feel good about this. Christian, when those things happen with us, here's what we know. We know that in Christ we have a priest who is in the presence of the Father, constantly claiming on our behalf the forgiveness that He purchased for us on the cross. He's constantly claiming. Every time a believer falls into sin, Father, I died for that sin. Father, I died for her. I died for him. That sin is atoned. It's just, I don't, I don't know exactly what this looks like. It's hard for me to envision, but there's a sense in which this is realer than the, this is more real than the, the bench you're sitting on right now. Christ is claiming the benefits of his atoning death before the Father for you. Hebrews 7 verse 27 says, unlike other high priests, Christ doesn't need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins, then for the sins of the people. It says he sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. You know what that phrase once for all means? It means, listen, believer, it means your sins are gone. They're gone. Our, our, our priest offered himself as a sacrifice. That's something priests do. There's something else priests do. In ancient Hebrew, in ancient Israel, priests would pray. You, you read that in the Old Testament. The priest would go into the presence of, of, of God symbolically in the temple, bearing on his clothing the names of the different tribes of Israel, just taking the names of God's people into the presence of God to intercede for them there. Do you, do you know there's a sense in which Jesus does that for you? He's, he prays for you. Again, Hebrews chapter 7, it says this, because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them, to pray for them. This is, to me, this is just so mysterious. I don't know exactly how to envision this, but I know it's true that, that listen, 
Believer, Jesus Christ right now, your high priest, he's talking to the Father about you. He's praying for you. He's praying for your family. He's praying for your needs. Right, right. Isn't that something? Right now, just, just like the names of the Israelite tribes were on the clothing of the high priest, right now, isn't this something? Believer, right now, your name is on the lips of your Savior. You're being discussed right now in the, in the triune Godhead. God the Son is talking to God the Father about you, praying lovingly for you. It just it makes me want to sing and cry at the same time. It's just so powerful. There was one, of the, one old, uh, old Scottish pastor named Robert Murray Machane. Here's what he wrote back in the 1800s. He said, he said, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I wouldn't fear a million enemies. He said, yet the distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. And he's praying for you. Romans chapter 8, 34 says, Christ who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God interceding for us. So the ascension gave them joy. It can give us joy. Why, why did they have so much joy? No, nothing in their life changed. Everything was still messed up. They were still poor, broken, needy people. But here's what they knew. Their king was on his throne now. The world they lived in was under his control. And their priest was in his temple, interceding for them. And listen to me. Those things can give you that same joy today. So would you join me? And let's, let's pray to God for him to give us that joy. Father, these truths that the, the Scripture reveals about Jesus and what He's doing right now for us, they are beyond our ability fully to comprehend, but you, you assure them uh, us of them so that we can live life in this world without fear, with great hope, and with joy. And I, and I pray that Your Holy Spirit would empower us to do that today. And if there is any here for whom just this talk of Jesus is so new, we pray that as you open their minds, Jesus, to understand Scripture, you would open people's minds today, that you would give us hearts to understand and believe and trust, and that we would rejoice in you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.